You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us in that. If you have a Bible, I invite and encourage you to turn to Genesis 29. Genesis 29. Saying, in Christ alone, my hope is found. You know, at one level, we, we know that to be true. Our hope is found in Christ alone. A Christian is not someone who hedges their bets, living for Christ on Sunday, living for the pleasures and accomplishments of the world the rest of the week. A Christian is not someone who puts their hope in Christ sometimes, putting hope in the feeble but attractive pleasures of the world the rest of the time. A Christian is someone who is, who aims to be all in for Jesus. Paul, the great first century apostle and missionary in 1 Corinthians 15, wrote to that church at Corinth, and he said of himself and his missionary work and labors, he said, look, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ isn't truly our eternal reward, he said, if what life has brought me here is all I'm going to get, um, he said, you should feel very sorry for the life we've had to live. His life was hard. It was difficult. It was painful. He suffered much because he was all in, aiming to take the good news of Christ to as many people as he could, to take it to places that it had never been taken before. Clearly, his hope was in Christ. His hope was in eternal reward. Paul could confidently say, in Christ alone, my hope is found. Because he lived a life that demonstrated the truth of that claim. If you're a Christian, you, you know that Christ is the only place to find a lasting and secure hope. And if you're not yet a Christian, if you're not yet a Christian, that's what you need to see and what you need to know. That whatever it is you're building your life on, whatever it is you're building meaning and significance into your life on, simply is not going to ultimately deliver. Only Christ can do that. Think Alexander the Great, that great Greek conqueror who conquered more land than anyone ever had to that point, conquered much of the known world, and he reached the end as far as his army would go. The greatest conqueror the world had seen, and what did he do? Weep. There's nothing left to conquer. He had it all, and it just wasn't enough. Whatever it is we think we want, Whatever it is we think we'll build our life on simply will not be ultimately enough. Christians know that's true. Deep down, we know in our hearts and minds that it's true, that if we seek first Christ and his kingdom, we'll find that living for Jesus, Jesus himself, is enough forever. We know that's the truth, but, but we often have a hard time living like that's true. And I think our story here in Genesis 29 can help us. But, but maybe not without hurting us a little bit first. See, in this story this morning, we're going to see that the kind of things that lead us away from an all-in commitment to Christ, 
that lead us away from putting our ultimate hope in Him are often not grotesque, evil things. The things that keep us from finding peace and setting our hope securely on Christ often aren't the terrible things. Where we can't congratulate ourselves because we don't murder, rape, and pillage. No, the kind of things that often compromise our wholehearted hope and confidence in Christ are often good things that we make into ultimate things. Things that we're meant to enjoy that we start to worship. Things that are supposed to be blessings that become idols. Well, let's look this morning at God's Word together. Genesis 29. I'll start reading in verse 31. This is God's Word. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he's given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I've borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I'll praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing well, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come, so he called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter you've taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, well, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we look to you and your word. 
I pray that the Spirit that inspired these words would speak now to our hearts through them, that we would see and, and understand them, that we would believe them and embrace them and obey them for your glory and for our joy in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Family is one of life's very great joys and also one of its biggest frustrations and disappointments. We have an idea of what family should be like. We have a vision of what it could and should be. Marriages that are deeply gratifying and mutually edifying. Children who honor and respect and obey us and make us proud and make us look like good parents. Extended family relationships that provide a context for deep and satisfying friendships and sharing of life together. We have a picture, however fuzzy, of what a family should look like. And we have a clear view of the reality of the thing. When you're young, you assume that every family is like your own. But as you grow older and more aware, you realize that every family is different, but, but they all share at least one thing in common. Family life can be hard. It can be frustrating. It can be disappointing. It's remarkable to me as I meet people all the time and, and learn about their families, how common, how almost universal is frustration and difficulty and disappointment in family relationships. Whether it's with their children or with their parents in their marriage, with extended family. Family life is often really hard. In fact, I know a family that, that does everything together all the time. They're constantly together. They'll drive great distances. They're always together. And it's so unusual, it seems strange and weird. Like, something's not right. They're too close. How could they be so connected? Well, as we look at J Jacob's family growing here in Genesis this morning, what do we see? Lots of dysfunction. Lots of frustration. Conflict. Pain. Probably, as you look at your family life, you see some of those things too. Why is that? Is it inevitable? Is it just baked into the way the universe is? That family relationships, the most significant and meaningful relationships in our lives, can be so hard and difficult and frustrating. Is that just the way it is? Well, we know where it starts. In Genesis chapter 2, God creates the man and the woman. He brings them together in the garden. There's no sin. There's nothing between them. They are, you know, two become one flesh. Total openness, vulnerability. The, the ideal, perfect marriage and relationship. And then Genesis 3, sin comes in. And struggle comes in. That oneness is broken. They, they become competitive toward each other, each trying to rule over the other. Then they have children. It'll get better there, surely. No. Their one son kills their other son. That's family conflict. Then we get down a couple more chapters and we get to Noah. And his family is spared in the flood, but afterwards more conflict one his son acts out in a very sinful and awful way and is separated from the rest of the family. We get into the patriarchs, Abraham and his wife, Sarai. 
He tries to pass her off as his sister, exposing her to great potential harm. Abraham has conflict with his nephew Lot. His son Isaac and Rebekah, they play favorites with their children, Jacob and Esau, who are competitive and always after each other. That family, as we've seen over the last several weeks, has all kinds of dysfunction. It just seems to be in the story. That's what sin does. We look at this family, and it's a wonder that God is using it at all. We feel like he could certainly find a better group of people, certainly find a more functional, healthy, well-adjusted family to accomplish his purposes. But the big idea and purpose of this passage is to show how God is creating a people for himself. A people not impressive in themselves, but rather a a needy people through whom God can display his loving mercy and grace. For it's it's this very dysfunctional family, Jacob's family, these 11 and and soon to be 12 sons who will become the 12 tribes of Israel, God's covenant people through whom he's accomplishing his purposes in the world and through whom will come someday Jacob's great descendant, Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world. God is using a dysfunctional family in his grace to accomplish great things. And that gives me hope. It gives me hope that by God's grace, God could use my family. And by God's grace, he could use your family too. What we want is a perfect, peaceful, deeply fulfilling family life. We think that's the kind of family God could use. But God wants to work in imperfect, flawed families so he can display his power and grace and blessing to sinners. So so this morning, I want to look at this story, and I want to see five important family truths as we look at what God is doing here in Jacob's family. Here's the first thing. Five things, if you're taking notes. The first is this. God knows and cares about your family struggle. God knows and cares about your family's struggles. Look at verse 31 again, Genesis 29. It says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. God saw that she was hated. She saw that too. You remember from last week, Leah's situation. She had been given deceiving Jacob, her husband, she had been given by deception to him as a wife. He did not want her. And so the morning after the wedding, after it's been consummated, her husband wakes up and says to his father-in-law, why did you give her to me? That's not the wife I wanted. That's not how she wanted to wake up the morning after her wedding night either. Leah is hated. She is not wanted. And God knows. God sees. You see this. She know, just look down a couple of verses to chapter 30, verse 3. When she begins bearing children, she bears her first... Or actually, not in chapter 30, but in verse 20, um, 33. Now, I can't even find the verse now. Whatever verse it is. Well, anyway... What he says is, now my husband, she says, now my husband will love me. 
Now he'll love me. I've given him a son. Now he'll love me. Leah's pain is deep. She is an unwanted wife. In fact, this word hated isn't, isn't merely indicating that, that he doesn't care for her. It also is, is a semi-technical term which suggests she, she is the unfavored co-wife who he can and may very well get rid of. He could divorce her. She is unfavored and unwanted. She is extremely vulnerable. But God sees and he knows about Leah's plight. Remember back in Genesis 16, uh, Abraham uh, and his wife Sarai can't have a baby, and so Sarai gives her, her servant Hagar to Abraham, and, and Hagar has a baby. It's a son for Abraham, and then she mocks and ridicules Sarai, and so they send her away, and she's out in the wilderness. She's an unwanted sort of wife sent away in the wilderness to die, and God meets her there and provides for her. And, and what does she say afterwards? She names him, she talks about God as El Roy, the God who sees me. Look, whatever your family struggle, God knows and cares. He isn't, he isn't unconcerned. He's not caught up in big, high-level you know, news media issues, national and international concerns, too busy to be concerned with the difficulties, frustrations, and disappointments that you know in your family life. God sees and knows. He abounds in mercy and grace and love to those who suffer or are unloved. Psalm 68.5 says, God is the father of the fatherless, the protector of widows. God knows, and God sees, and God cares about your family struggles. Here's the second thing we see about family here. Family can become an idol. Family can become an idol. Look in chapter 29, verse 32. Leah begins to have children, and she begins to name them. Names are significant in the Bible. And we pick names today for all sorts of reasons. Maybe because it's someone in our family, maybe because we think it sounds good, whatever the case may be. But in the Bible, often, the names are picked for what they mean. And so these names in this story are, are very significant. She names her first son Reuben, which means something like, or sounds something like, see a son. Now I've got a son. Now my husband will love me. See, a son. Then Simeon, her next one, says, because the Lord has heard. Simeon sounds like the word to hear. The Lord has heard that I'm hated. And then the third one, Levi, perhaps most telling, now my husband will be attached to me. Three sons I've given him. Now my husband will be attached to me. All these names, speaking of her concern for her eagerness to have her husband's affection and love. Well, we can hardly be surprised that Leah feels this way. We, we can hardly blame her for feeling this way. And surely husbands should love their wives deeply and wholeheartedly. The New Testament tells us as much. Husband, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But Leah's heart, it seems, is consumed by this desire to win her husband's love. It rules and controls her heart. And what controls our hearts is what we worship. The desire to be loved becomes an idol. And, and Rachel isn't any better. She has her husband's love, but no children. 
And that desire for children becomes for her an idolatrous desire. Both of these sisters have pinned their hopes on pleasing, impressing, and winning over their husband to them. Look, if you pin your happiness and hopes on harmonious and fulfilling family relationships, you're going to find yourself perpetually frustrated and disappointed. If that's what you need to be happy, you will find yourself often unhappy. Family is a wonderful gift. It's a terrible master. And if you indulge the desire for and the expectation of the perfect family, you'll start to find yourself using your family rather than loving them. They're there to meet a need, a desire that, that we have for our family life to be perfect, everything we want and dreamed it would be, and we begin to use them rather than love them. We, when they disappoint us and let us down, which they will, we don't move toward them in forgiveness and reconciliation because they've become the problem. They become the ones that come between us and our idol, our dream of a perfect family. Only God himself can meet all of our needs. Only God can do that. And it's in his gracious love and acceptance we find the resources, the surplus, to extend ourselves in gracious love towards our families, even when they frustrate, disappoint, and let us down. Number three, envy brutalizes family relationships. All relationships, really. But here we see envy brutalizes family relationships relationships. Look at chapter 30, verse 1. When Jake, Rachel saw she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She envied her. And she starts making demands of Jacob, right? Rachel envies the children Leah has given to Jacob. Leah envies the love that Rachel has from Jacob. Envy brutalizes relationships. Down in verse 8, after she gives her maidservant to Jacob and uh, the maidservant has a son, she calls him Naphtali and Rachel says, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. Remarkable that that's on her mind. Can you imagine if you named your next kid, like I'm beating, my, you know, I've beaten my, childbearing has become a contest, right? It's envy, it's competition, it's comparison. Envy and comparison are brutal on relationships. And look, we do this all the time. Years ago, my brother-in-law brother -in -law and I used to joke about this. Uh, and it was in joking, but we used to talk about what, you know, we, we had to have one more than the other. You know, he's, uh, um, what, what score are you hoping to shoot today on the golf course? Just one stroke better than you, right? What kind of car are you looking at getting? What year? I said, well, how old is your car? I just need one year newer, you know? How many kids are you going to have? One more than you, right? That's just... And it wasn't fun, right? But we, but we feel that competitive sense, right? This comparison. It's, it's so innate, right, to compare. And how often comparison, if we, if we sit back in the abstract and look, I had occasion to do this recently, how, how much God has blessed us, right? But then we start seeing, well, they have this and they have that. And, and the comparison and the envy that results makes us discontent, makes us bitter, makes us unhappy. That kind of comparison and envy can poison families and tear them up. We become unable to rejoice in the blessings that others receive because we make it about us. Why didn't I get that? They don't, they don't deserve that. And we make their blessings somehow 
about us. You remember the story that Jesus tells about the prodigal son. And the younger prodigal son goes away and squanders his share of his father's fortune. And when he finally comes back, humbled and broken and repentant, his father receives him and throws him a party. And the older son gets upset. Dad, you never did this for me. You've never done this for me. Why would you do this for him? This awful brother who squand, you know, tarnished our family name and squandered half our family fortune. And, and the father is just gracious and loving toward both sons. And he says to the older son, he says, look, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. We look sometimes at people and what they have, the blessings they enjoy. We, we get envious and we compare and we think, well, why? They don't deserve. Why can't I? And God is telling us in Christ, everything, everything he has is, is ours. We're going to inherit every good blessing and joy from the Father. We are not going to be shortchanged in the end as his children. Every good thing we, he has, he's going to share with us. We inherit all things with Christ. If you deal with relational conflict in your family or otherwise, look Look carefully at your heart for envy and comparison. Number four, trust God with your family. Trust God with your family. We see here that the wives of Jacob do the same thing that Jacob's grandmother, Sarah, did. The promises don't seem to be happening. So they give their maidservants to Jacob to have children on their behalf. Rachel does it first. They've got to do something. Right? It goes terribly for Abraham and Sarai when they do that. It creates great conflict, lasting, generational conflict in their home. Jacob's wives do the same thing. And Jacob, passively, he's passive in this whole story. That could be a sermon in itself. Jacob passively goes along. And he brings that same kind of conflict into his family. So Rachel has two sons with her maidservant through Jacob, and Leah says, well, I've I got to keep pace and take my maidservant. And she has two sons as well. Rather than trusting God, they take matters foolishly into their own hands. And then more. After that, starting in verse 9, or verse 14, it says, In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went out, and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. The, the mandrake was a, a fruit that grows in that area. It's kind of a yellowish color, uh, kind of like a small tomato, but it was widely to believe to be an, an aphrodisiac and also to have f- fertility-giving power. And so to find one was a big deal. And Reuben finds it, brings it to his mother, who already has six children, uh, four of her own and two through her servant, and brings the mandrakes to her in, in, in Rachel's seas. And she says, I want those. Those could help me. And so they begin to negotiate. She goes to Leah and says, please, would you give me some of your son's mandrakes? Leah says, you've already taken my husband. Now you want my mandrakes? And he says, fine, you can have him tonight. It would appear, it would appear that that Leah and Jacob are no longer together, at least in in, in a sexual kind of way. It said she'd stopped bearing earlier on. And so she's negotiating for a chance to be with her husband. And Rachel's trading that for mandrakes. And you have this kind of manipulative bartering going on in this situation. What you don't have is people trusting God. And they take matters into our own hands. And, And often we do that. In our family life, we do that. 
we manipulate, we scheme, we, we try to bring about the end, the purposes that we're trying to accomplish, rather than waiting on and trusting in God. We, we need to trust God with our families. You, you remember the story of Hannah. We read it earlier in the service. Hannah longs for a son. She's barren. Her, her co-wife mocks her. Every year, as we read, they travel up to Jerusalem for the feast, and Penina, her co-wife, mocks her and ridicules and insults her. And what does Hannah do? She goes to the temple and goes to God. She looks to him. She prays and waits for him to answer her prayer, which he does. In the, the relational and family difficulties that you and I experience, that's where we need to go. Not manipulation, not cajoling, not trying to force things to happen the way we want them to happen. What we need to do is take it to the Lord and trust in Him. Number five, and finally, your family can't ultimately fulfill you. Family is not the final answer to all your needs, all your problems, all your desires for joy, significance, and meaning in life. Family is not the answer. We see in verse 22, God remembered Rachel and he listened to her, opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son, said, God has taken away my reproach. What incredible joy she must have had. And she called his name Joseph uh, to add, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. She's already looking ahead. More sons. More. She has a son. May he give me more. Your family can't ultimately fulfill you. Family is a great gift, but it's not the ultimate thing. It's not the thing that will give your life ultimate meaning, significance, value, and joy. How many sons will it take to make Rachel happy? More. And so it is in our family relationships. In this sinful, fallen world, they'll never be perfect. We'll always crave more. They cannot ultimately fulfill us. Where then do we turn? We turn to Christ. Th think of the nature of the promises the gospel makes to us. That those who come to God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, are adopted into God's family. Such that Jesus says, when you talk to God, say this, Father, Father. It's not just a title. It's a relationship. Those who come to God through faith in Christ find God to be their Father. The Father, the parent that we've always craved and wanted, God becomes. Furthermore, what else do we see? That, that God comes in Christ and brings the church to himself as his bride. Forever with him. Forever delighting in him. Enjoying him. And, and he and us. It, it, the, the kind of marriage relationship. The kind of, the kind of connection and love that we, that we long for our marriages to be. We find that in the Bible that the marriage itself. Human marriage is actually a picture of a divine relationship. There will be no disappointment in that relationship with Christ. There will be no betrayal. There will be no letdowns. 
There will be no, I thought you would be better than this. It will be pure delight, pure joy, pure acceptance, pure love forever. And so the promises of the gospel invite us into God's own family. Our human families merely point to that great reality. And here in Genesis, as we've seen over several chapters, and we'll see over the next several, God is taking a very imperfect, broken family to whom he has made gracious, undeserved promises. I'm going to use you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. They're not a likely, a likely family for the job. They're a mess. But God's faithful, and God will use them. He will bring someday his greater son, Jesus the one who will save the world from their sins through this family. God means to use your family too. God means to bring us into His family. And that reality, that truth, that confidence frees us up to be gracious with our families. To not demand from them, to need from them, to take from them. You must fulfill me. You must give me the family life I crave. You must give me this storybook. No. We live in a sinful and broken world. And God means for us to be gracious, loving, bless those in our family, not to use them, but to extend God's own grace and love as they point, and by God's grace we point in those relationships toward a father who will never disappoint and a marriage that will never let us down. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning for Springview Community Church. We deeply need your grace and your help. Father, family is such an important part of our lives. So much of our hopes and dreams and relationships are tied up into our families. And Father, we find that, that often our families bring us disappointment, frustration, sorrow. Lord, I pray this morning for for great mercy and great grace, great encouragement. Father, you are redeeming all things through Christ. And, And so I pray this morning that we would pursue family relationships, ultimately in relationship to you, but 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 in our human families we would pursue and strive to extend the grace and mercy that you've shown to us. That that rather than needing people, they would be able to bless people and encourage and love and care for. Father, I pray that we would not make an idol of our families and of our relationships. We would not assume that if I had a better marriage, then I'd be happy. If I had better kids or better parents or better in-laws, I'd be happy. But but rather, we would see that, that our real need for happiness can only be filled and found in you. I pray you'd help us to that end. I pray that we would delight deeply in you and seek our joy and meaning significance in you forever. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for coming this morning. It's been good to be here with you. Uh, Let me encourage you to spend some time uh, visiting and encouraging one another. Let me send you out with these words of benediction from 1 Peter 5. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.